0: Welcome to a Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I am Dr. Jeanette Haffey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Joining me today is the author of the paper, Functional Assessment of Nutrition Status, published in the April 2015 issue of NCP. I'm pleased to introduce Mary Russell, MS, Registered Dietitian and Nutritionist, licensed dietitian and nutritionist, and fellow of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Over the years, Mary has worked in acute care as a nutrition support dietitian and as a manager, and she currently works for Baxter Healthcare Corporation in Deerfield, Illinois, in the nutrition area of the Integrated Pharmacy Solutions franchise. So, thank you, Mary, for joining me today. Before we get started, I'd like to ask if you have any disclosures on this topic that you'd like to share.
1: I do not have any disclosures relevant to this topic.
0: Thanks, Mary. Just yesterday, I was visiting with a physician and we were talking about a patient who needs to be repleted nutritionally before the surgeons wanted to attempt surgery, and we were talking about nutrition assessment tools. And I think many of us who practice in nutrition support struggle with finding what is that perfect set of nutrition assessment parameters. So why now have functional status markers become important tools for the nutrition support clinician?
1: That's an excellent question, and I was amazed to discover that this discussion of functional status assessment has been going on for decades. And in the paper, we referenced the Solomon's and Allen article, which talked in great detail about functional assessment of free-living individuals, some of whom were low-income living in other parts of the world and also in chronically ill people. Back in the 70s, when I was a medical technologist working in a hospital lab, we performed delayed hypersensitivity testing on burn patients in an attempt to do some sort of a functional assessment to see what the stress of the burn really did to their immune response. And at the time, of course, we discovered that there was no response whatsoever because of the inflammatory response that was going on, which we didn't really understand very well back then. But that was one of the early functional assessment tools, as were some other physical assessment things that we talk about in the paper, including things like ability to walk, ability to do the activities of daily living, and even ability to have sexual relations with the partner. So there were a lot of things that were looked at back then. I think the new focus of the functional assessment came with the development and publication of the malnutrition syndrome consensus definitions that were a joint Aspen Academy effort, and in his paper that was published in j Dr. Jensen, who is one of the prime movers of that initiative, talked about functional status under additional supportive findings, which actually we'll talk about later. Many times these functional assessment tools are supportive rather than diagnostic. We do know that the nutrition deficits and the impaired organ system function that do occur with malnutrition and with illness and injury do contribute to the overall decline in functional status, which we see. So it really is something that has been going on for a long time, and I think in terms of being on people's radar to look at functional assessment, but the actual ways in which it's accomplished have not been brought to the forefront quite as much recently.
0: Mary, also from your perspective, what are some of the benefits of using these function status markers to assess and even monitor patients and what would be some of the drawbacks of these functional status markers?
1: Well, I think the benefits of them are that the changes in functional status can precede or follow nutritional status changes. In the paper, I mentioned an anecdote of a patient that I saw who had advanced pancreatic cancer, was extremely cachectic and malnourished. I think even the newest nutrition practitioner would have been able to diagnose that. And yet that man's hand grip, which was only measured by asking him to grasp my hand, not using a dynamometer, was extraordinarily strong. And I had no reason to think that he was trying to, you know, best me or, or beat me or anything like that. He was just doing what I asked. So in this case, even though he was clearly malnourished, his hand grip was really, really strong. So I think it's interesting, and I think the value of bringing these functional tools to the fore is that we would hopefully, with now electronic medical records and other tools, be able to collect data on the results of these various assessments of functional status and connect it to other indicators that may be useful in terms of predicting an overall nutrition assessment picture like you mentioned before. Functional status is a dynamic indicator of muscle mass, and the patient can also be used as their own control. There are some standards out there for some of these tools, but in this case, I almost view it like a physical therapist who walks the patient a little bit more each day And that is an outcome measure that they can actually track. I think in this case, measuring functional assessment tools over time would be some data that would be helpful and hopefully eventually correlate to other broader data of uh, nutritional status. And I think that another great benefit is that the functional status can be tested before, during, or after a nutrition intervention or all three. One of the drawbacks is that it can't be done on bedridden patients and virtually impossible, many of the tools, probably most of them, on critically ill patients. There is a lack of well-defined reference values for these, so that can be somewhat frustrating. And some are quite subjective, and if one delves into the literature a little bit, especially, for example, on the manual muscle testing, you will note that even among trained physical therapists, there can be some variation in the results that they see with tools. And they do require more time and expertise than some other things, than perhaps looking at a lab value and trying to interpret it. And thus, there needs to be some competency development and testing for individuals who do these things.
0: You kind of already answered this to a certain degree, but thinking about that patient you talked about who was cachectic. So when we care for someone who's clearly malnourished, What benefit is there in using a functional status measure in that type of patient? Or on the other hand, if you have a patient who appears well-nourished, what additional information would a functional test add?
1: Interesting point. And I think that gentleman and other patients that I've known over the years have really made it clear to me that, that one test, in this case a rough measure of hand grip, was not necessarily diagnostic of anything, but I do believe that the big data opportunities that we have now with electronic medical records and with even the power that we carry in, in the phones that we carry in our hands can allow large amounts of data to be entered into the systems and possibly looked at later on to determine if there are patterns that we can determine. In the well-nourished patients, and I think I mentioned also in the article that in some physical assessment seminars that I've been involved in, there have been very well-nourished individuals who tend to be female at these seminars, but some males who have been very disappointed that their hand grip strength was much below the so-called norms that we had that were provided by the manufacturer. And they said they worked out, and they said they ate well, and they were physically fit and ran marathons in some cases, and yet still their hand grip was lower than they wanted to see, and yet they were clearly very well nourished. So that was kind of an interesting thing, and again, I think a large data collection would be an interesting research study for someone who may be pursuing a doctorate or even a master's degree. I think another interesting side of the so-called well-nourished is that recent papers, including one that was published, I believe, in JPEN out of Rush, showed that subjective global assessment was used to identify patients in the ICU, and a number of those patients were viewed as well-nourished by SGA, and yet by a CT analysis, they had low lean muscle mass. So I think there, again, we're not going to likely be doing a lot of these tests in the ICU but it does suggest to me that there are so-called well-nourished patients out there that may be picked up and identified by using some of these tools. So it's not clear. It's not 100% clear right now which ones are going to work for whom, but I think there will be some interesting data available if we – for example, with uh, patient-centered medical homes, if we're able to have a situation where a dietitian and a physical therapist and a physician and a nurse and others work together in a pod, so to speak, we could potentially collect some data that would be interesting and would add to our understanding of how these tools connect with actual nutritional status.
0: We also know that when we have tools or assessment tools that we want them to be valid and reliable. So do the measures of functional status tend to lend themselves to good inter-rater reliability? I know you mentioned competency earlier. So what can be done to improve our inter-rater reliability since most times there's going to be more than one observer taking these measurements?
1: That's an excellent point. And, again, I think it cries out for some data to be collected. In the research that I've reviewed, there were sort of pros and cons. For example, with the manual muscle testing, some studies have shown that it can be highly reliable, despite differences in the examiner's testing or the training skills or the training that they've had, and despite different individuals doing the test, as you alluded to. But other data, other studies have gone against that and have said that MMT can be very unreliable if a variety of people do it. So I think they're, like other techniques, standardized procedures, competency Calibration of tools, for example, if you're using a hand-grip dynamometer, it needs to be calibrated, it needs to be stored properly, would be really crucial. Hand-grip strength measures, generally speaking, again, we have studies that show you can have inter reliability coefficients of greater than 0.97, which is very, very good, and test-retest reliability of greater than 0.8, but that is just some studies. That doesn't mean that every individual that would undertake these measurements would be able to come up with that same great coefficient of interradial reliability. So it really, really involves standard procedures testing, regular testing to be sure that the individuals that are doing this are competent and making sure that if you do need equipment in the case of hand grip that it's actually stored and calibrated according to the manufacturer's directions and that the individuals who are using it know how to use it.
0: In your paper, you also talk about three tools that actually address performance status or the ability to complete daily activities. The three you mentioned with a lot in instrumental activities of daily living scale, the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group Performance Status Tool, and maybe the one that I'm more familiar with is the Kronoski Performance Scale Index. So can you just kind of briefly talk about the similarities and differences of the tools and maybe how a nutrition support clinician would want to use one of those scales?
1: Well, and that's a great question, and thanks for asking that one. I mean, clearly, if you look at the ECOG, and, again, we have references to the electronic sites where these are available, and I would encourage everyone to look at them, but the ECOG is probably the most simple and straightforward of the tools. It basically rates someone on a zero to five scale with five being dead and zero being fully active and able to carry on pretty much all things that they did before they were ill. So I feel like the ECOG is probably pretty straightforward and easy for almost anyone to use, including nutrition support dietitian at the bedside, because it probably would be able to be determined with review of the chart, possibly with talk to a significant other if they were available, if the patient was not able to answer questions themselves. The Karnofsky scale, which you mentioned you're familiar with, Jeanette, is a little bit more detailed. It goes from 0 to 100, with 0 being dead and 100 being completely free of disease and no complaints. It says normal. So 80 to 100 is generally considered in the normal range, 50 to 70 is unable to work but can take care of personal needs with varying amounts of assistance, and then unable to care for yourself, requiring institutional care is from 0 to 40, with 40 being disabled and requiring care, and then going downwards from there to those who are very ill and all the way down to someone who is dying. So that, I think, again, requires a bit more in terms of interfacing with either the patient or the family, understanding a little bit more about their situation than perhaps a nutrition support clinician in an ICU would be able to accomplish. However, I think both of these scales, all three of them actually, are very useful in terms of clinic settings or outside of the ICU settings in a medical ward or a surgical ward, for example. The Lawton Instrumental Activities of Daily Living Scale, as it talks about, is really an interesting one and I think would be useful for individuals who have elderly parents or other people that they work with in terms of thinking about how they get through their day. It looks at shopping, using the telephone, housekeeping, modes of transportation, food preparation, finances, ability to take medications, even doing laundry, and rates various criteria within that, either with the zero points or one point. And then obviously the higher the score, the more capable the individual is. So it's intended, the Lawton Instrumental Activities was intended to be used for older adults, and it is said to not be useful for those who are institutionalized because clearly many of the questions on this would not apply to someone who is living in an institutional environment. So I think that one may be most useful for someone, say, who's following home parental nutrition patients or home anteral nutrition patients in a clinic setting, or even perhaps individuals who are on chemotherapy and tube feeding or parental nutrition that come into the hospital periodically for treatment, I think it would be an interesting tool to add to the armamentarium. And again, I feel like a lot of these would be very amenable to a patient-centered medical home approach where a lot of individuals are working together to Get information and assess the individual rather than expecting the nutrition or dietitian or pharmacist or nurse to collect all this information at once.:
0: In your paper you talk about manual muscle testing and hand group strength, and they tend to both measure muscle strength, and hand group strength seems to be maybe the more objective measurement. So what kind of comparisons can you make with the manual muscle testing or as you call it MMT and the hand group strength? like who can you detect how do you t- t- measure progress, et cetera?
1: I don't know the exact answer as to whether any registered dietitian or registered nurse or pharmacist has been qualified to do MMT. I would imagine that anyone who's trained and competent and has been trained preferably by an experienced physical therapist would be able to do that. Again, some studies of the MMT have found it to be highly reliable and Despite differences in training or examination technique, others have found that even a trained physical therapist cannot identify drops in muscle strength sort of below the fair level. So there does need to be a strict protocol for doing manual muscle testing, and um, I think that it's versatile. It can be used in a lot of different settings and a lot of different muscle groups, but it is subject to being able to grade only clinically detectable weakness and again in the range of good to normal so if someone's quite weak it may not be as useful a technique and so therefore it may not be as useful for individuals certainly who are in a hospital setting the hand grip strength is more objective as we've talked about it does require equipment it only tests the strength of the upper extremities whereas manual muscle testing can be aligned to any muscle in the body upper or lower body So it is definitely more of an objective measure. And I think certainly a registered dietitian, a registered nurse, a physical therapist, anyone could conduct a hand grip strength measurement. And I don't believe there would necessarily be any scope of practice issues that would be overlooked if that registered dietitian did that. With manual muscle testing, again, I would probably want to communicate with my physical therapy colleagues, no matter what my practice setting was, to try to determine if we could somehow coordinate who was going to do these measurements or at least who was going to do the training if it was determined that someone other than a physical therapist would actually do the test.
0: You also, in your paper, talked about several functional tests that can be done on ambulatory patients. So the ones you mentioned were the 30-second chair stand, the stair-climb test, the 4 by 10 fast-paced walk, the timed up-and-go test, and the six-minute walk. Can you kind of briefly walk us through those, and maybe mention how a nutrition support clinician might be able to utilize those
1: tests? Absolutely. Thanks. Great question. In the paper, we do make reference to a paper by Benel et al., which is an excellent resource for all of this. It provides extremely significant and useful detail about all of these, so I would encourage anyone who's really interested to see if they can find that paper. It was quite easy to find, so hopefully it should be accessible for most folks. That 30-second chair stand is a lower body strength and power test, and the person is asked to rise from a standard chair and then sit down and do it over and over again for 30 seconds with their arms folded across their chest. And so the measurement there is how many times they can do it in a 30-second period. Um, The stair climb was reviewed, again, in a paper that I believe I referenced in the paper that's going to be published by Nightingale et al., an excellent review of a variety of studies that looked at a varied number of steps, whether or not it was upstairs and downstairs or just upstairs, and they found that there were lack of norms, definitely, in using this assessment. The measurement is how long it takes to go up or down a certain number of steps, and, again, this is a test of lower extremity strength, power and also of balance. The fast-paced walk, 4 by 10 meters, there's a lot of variations of this particular test. In this case, it's walking 10 meters four times and they define it as quickly and safely without overexerting and the time is measured in seconds and typically that's done on the inside, not outside and done on a flat, safe surface with no hills or anything of that nature. The time get up and go is a basic mobility and strength balance agility test that is looked at the time to rise from an armchair in this case, not a so-called standard chair, walk three meters, turn, then go back to the chair and sit down. And so the measurement there is the time that it takes to actually do that and the individual is allowed to, or should wear their regular footwear, and in this case, the individual is allowed to have a walking aid if necessary, so that's how that's looked at. And the six-minute walk is fairly self-explanatory. It's your ability to walk and it's your endurance. They're basically measuring, again, the distance that it takes, or the amount of time, rather, that it takes you to walk six minutes on a hard, flat floor. And in all cases, verbal encouragement is allowed, but no other assistance other than this walking aid if that's what a patient needs or an individual needs. So it's a pretty interesting set of procedures. Again, I don't necessarily see a dietitian doing this or a nurse or a pharmacist in a hospital setting. Again, this seems to be more the realm of a physical therapist, and I think in some places there may very well be scope of practice issues that you'd run into if you tried to do this outside of your scope, because you're obviously working with someone who is a patient, and if they fall or if they otherwise compromise themselves and you are not operating within your scope, that would be potentially an issue. So I would imagine that a dietitian could do these things if they were properly trained and credentialed by a physical therapist and by their organization, but I would certainly not suggest that individuals start doing these things on hospitalized patients unless they were properly credentialed and the process was reviewed to be sure that there weren't any issues with liability or, again, with scope of practice. So I think some of these would be really interesting, again, to be able to do in a clinic setting. Again, time may be an issue with the visits. If the visit is limited time, it may be less ideal or optimal for someone to actually try to do these things. But, you know, if I was still in practice, I would probably start talking to a physical therapist and seeing what we could do about incorporating some of these things, especially, say, for home nutrition support patients.
0: When you talk about some of these tests like the hand growth strength, where do you find standards for normal levels, or is it more important for us to measure patients against their own prior performance?
1: Well, I think that's a really interesting question, and the first answer I would give is that measuring patients against their prior performance is really a great idea, and I think that would provide some interesting baseline data. That's certainly, again, referring to physical therapists. When I worked in the hospital, both in pediatrics and adults, you'd see physical therapists walking patients and Some of the more complex patients, perhaps transplant patients or others, there would be lines on the floor that would show how far they walked one day and how far they walked the next day. And that was definitely an encouragement for the patient, but it was also an outcome measure for the physical therapist in terms of seeing what he or she was doing with that patient. It's a little bit more complicated, obviously, with nutrition support to see a direct correlation, but I think it would be interesting to start collecting some of that patient-on-patient data And incorporating that way back years ago when I worked in North Carolina we did hand grip strength tests on our home parental nutrition patients unfortunately we never published any of that data and it was a little more challenging back then to keep data because we didn't have the electronic means that we have now so I would encourage individuals to start collecting a database an Excel spreadsheet or whatever tool they feel like using to start actually collecting data and publishing it because that would be really useful Christina Norman, speaking of publishing, has done a lot of good work on hand grip strength measurements in a variety of different patients, and I would encourage the listeners to look at her work for some norms, and also the makers of the hand dynamometer tools, one of which is Jamar but certainly I'm not endorsing that one. There are other tools out there that can be used to measure hand grip strength, and they typically do come with standards as well. It's rather difficult to determine where those standards are derived from. So I think going against individual standards that you may have in your patient population and collecting that data would be an interesting step
0: probably answered this for the most part. We talked about how a lot of these functional tests can't be used in the IT patient who patient been stayed and sedated, and that it may lend itself as well to more outpatient settings. Can you see it being used in maybe even step-down units, rehabilitation, or long-term care facilities?
1: I definitely think that that would be an excellent place for these kinds of tools to be used. I mean, I especially get excited about a lot and instrumental tool definitely is said to not be used for patients who are institutionalized, which that's sort of a tough word to try to interpret. But I just think, for example, of patients who might be living in assisted living, which means that they are independent, but they have people come in and maybe help them with some of the activities of daily living. Or even in a continuing care community where there are independent individuals living, it would be interesting to sort of use these tools on older people because we tend to see muscle strength loss in a group specifically with older people. But I also believe that the rehab center or a step-down unit in particular would be very useful. And even in some ICU settings, I've seen in places where I've worked that patients who were on ventilators were gotten out of bed and walked down the hall by physical therapists as part of a technique or a protocol that was trying to help people maintain their muscle function and get off the ventilator earlier. So I think that creative individuals could probably find a number of different places where these tools could be used. and. Possibly even in an ICU setting, if an intubated patient, not a sedated patient, obviously, but if an intubated patient was able to be gotten up and walked, they could potentially do a hand grip strength measurement, too. So I think there's lots of interesting and creative ways that these tools could be used if we all put our heads together.
0: Mary, before we close, are there any other ideas or topics that you wanted to share with our listeners today?
1: I think this has been an excellent discussion. Thank you so much, Jeanette, for leading it. And I really hope and look forward to the discussion that will be generated by this paper and by other papers that have been published by Dr. Norman and by Dr. Jensen and the malnutrition group and many others, and that we can figure out a way to incorporate some of these tools and also other tools which are not as directly physical, but for example, analyzing CT scans to look at the amount of muscle mass that someone has, and maybe just develop perhaps some new indicators that may be more directly correlated to someone's nutritional status than some of the indicators that we've had in the past. I think this new interest in functional status assessment plus the capabilities that we have with electronic medical records and just computers in general to collect data pretty much anywhere, applications, et cetera, that we have lots of opportunities to take this in a new direction, and I thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk with you today.
0: Well, Mary, I really want to thank you. I encourage all of our readers to find out more about this topic in Mary Russell's article in the 2015 April issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thank you for joining us today.